Hello, and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is. It's a weekly podcast where we take a closer look at popular songs from the rock and roll era, and we look into some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Call, and now I remember why I usually record late at night. Hey, don't forget to check out the website, howgooditis.com, where you can find some stuff that I found interesting, some other stuff that doesn't necessarily fit well into the podcast itself. And, of course, go follow and like the show's Facebook page, which has some other stuff that'll keep you busy. You can find it at facebook.com slash, you how good it is pod. Once again this week, How Good It Is is a featured podcast on the Podcast Republic app, and I really like being able to say nice stuff about them because I was using this app long before they figured out I was around. You can get fully automated downloads from all the major podcast networks, so if you want to listen to a podcast other than How Good It Is, I guess you can do that. Uh, You can build playlists, and it will synchronize your playbacks across those devices, and if you want to try the beta version, there's a new feature that allows you to skip silences automatically. Podcast Republic is easy to use, and it's free, so go find it in the Google Play Store. Between 1962 and 1964, the Rolling Stones spent a lot of time cutting their performance teeth all over Britain and cultivating an image that, while it wasn't anti-Beatles, it was certainly a grungier alternative to the Beatles. Their manager, Andrew Luke Oldham, had the band uh, pose for the cover of their first album with unsmiling faces, and he encouraged the press to print stories with headlines like, Would you let your daughter marry a Rolling Stone? So according to Bill Wyman, Oldham didn't cultivate an image as such, but he definitely exploited the bad boy's image that was thrust upon them. At first, their attempts at breaking through in the U.S. were pretty much a disaster, even getting booed off the stage in San Antonio. But ultimately, the gambit paid off, because by the end of 1964, the Stones had managed to rack up a couple of hits with Tell Me, and It's All Over Now in the Top 40, and Time Is On My Side, working its way up the charts that fall, finally making it to number six in November. But in October, they figured it was time to take another shot at reintroducing themselves to American music fans, and they managed to book an appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show. In nice twist, they didn't open with their new single, but rather with a cover of Chuck Berry's song, Around and Around. Now, because of all of you, we're going to have them in... They're going to have them in both halves of the show. So here's the first appearance of the... The joy was rocking, going round and round. Yeah, reeling and rocking, what a crazy sound. But they never stop rocking, till the moon went down. I didn't sound so sweet, I had to take me a chance. I rose out of my seat, I just had to dance. They saved uh, Time Is On My Side for the second spot in the show. And as you can hear, of course, the fans went berserk in much the same way they had been for the Beatles just a few months earlier. By the time the second album came out a few months later, they were moving at a breakneck pace. And let me just... I want you to get a handle on how fast they were going here. In April of 1964, they had released their first album titled The Rolling Stones, which in the U.S. was subtitled England's Newest Hitmakers. In October of that same year, they released 12 by 5, which was followed immediately by the U.S. tour. Then in January of 1965, after this, came The Rolling Stones No. 2, or Volume 2, depending on where you bought your copy. 
It was still mostly R&B covers, but there were a few Mick Jagger and Keith Richards compositions in there. Now, the Stones were still touring and they were still recording at that point, and as near as I can pin this down, what happened next took place in May to early June of 1965. By all accounts, one of rock and roll's most famous guitar riffs was written by Keith Richards in his sleep. There were a couple of uh, different versions about where this happened, but in Richards' biography from 2010, he places it definitively at his flat in Carlton Hill, St. John's Wood. In another book written about him a few years earlier, he's quoted as saying that he was still mostly asleep when he got up in the middle of the night, recorded a rough version of it on a portable tape recorder, and that was that. In the morning, he says, when he played the tape back, there was about two minutes of him playing acoustic guitar before you hear him just drop the guitar pick, and then there's about 40 minutes of him snoring. Richards has never had a memory of getting up and making that recording. So he brought the tape to the rest of the band so they could hear the riff, which he thought sounded like Martha Reeves dancing in the street. In fact, Keith Richards has had a couple of problems with the song, but we'll get to those. Based on that playback, though, Mick Jagger started fooling around with some lyrics. Now, on May 6, 1965, the Rolling Stones played a, a show in Jack Russell Stadium in Clearwater, Florida. At that time, it was the home of the Philadelphia Phillies training camp, but they moved out of there a few years ago, and now it's where the baseball teams for Clearwater High School and St. Petersburg College play. At any rate, the show itself was a weird kind of a bust. There were four opening acts. First, there was a local garage band called the Romans. Then a band out of Milwaukee called The Legends, with that brand of rock, the Milwaukee rock sound, followed by The Catalinas, which, despite their name, were more of a Carolina beach sound type of band. And the last opening act was The Intruders, a Philadelphia soul band, so a lot going on there. According to an article in the St. Petersburg Times around that time, about 200 members out of the audience of 3,000 got into a fight with a line of police officers at the show, and the Stones made it through just four songs as the chaos ensued. The band got hustled into a station wagon and driven away from the venue. The article quotes Gary Gerritsen, the head of the Clearwater Recreation Department, as saying, There will never be another show like this as long as I'm here. The next day, while sitting poolside at the Fort Harrison Hotel, which is also in Clearwater, Mick Jagger started writing the lyrics for the song. While he was on this tour, Jagger basically saw two sides of America, a real one and a phony one, and that was the point of view of this song. The narrator is looking for authenticity, and he can't find it anywhere. Just a few days later, on May 10th, they recorded a version of this song at the Chess Studios in Chicago. Now, this version has Brian Jones playing the harmonica. It wasn't used for the final release, but they did use it for lip-syncing during their appearance a couple of days later on the TV show Shindig. The line, I'm trying to make some girl, was cut out completely as being too suggestive, but when we come back from the blank spot, you can really hear Brian Jones honking away on that harmonica, so when you hear a moment of silence, that's not an accident here. Let me come back around to that centering bit for a moment because Mick Jagger found it kind of amusing. While the phrase make some girl, yeah, probably had some connection to having sex with her, he notes that the censors missed what he considered the dirtier line, which is the one that comes after. Come back maybe next week 
because you see I'm on a losing streak, is actually reference to menstruation. In between the May 10th recording and the Shindig appearance, they recorded the song again, but with a different twist. Now, if you're listening to the show on the day that it releases, May 12th, then you're listening on the anniversary of this recording, and I swear I didn't plan it that way. The Gibson Guitar Company had just sent a fuzz box to Keith Richards, and in playing around with it, he ran his guitar through the fuzz box. Now, he was never intending for that guitar to be on the record. His intention was to use it as a scratch track for horns. He really just wanted to show what the horns were supposed to be doing. But the other Rolling Stones, as well as producer and manager Andrew Lou Goldham and sound engineer David Hassinger, eventually outvoted Richards and the Fuzzbox uh, guitar became part of the record sound. You've probably noticed that it's pretty much the only time the Rolling Stones used that sound. And again, that's on Keith Richards. He thought the box had limited use and sounded kind of gimmicky, but it was good for that song and that's plenty for him. Jack Nietzsche assisted with the recording, playing piano and replacing Mick Jagger on the tambourine because he thought Jagger was playing it without any soul. Now, most of the Rolling Stones' pre-1966 hits were never released in stereo. For example, this one, actually, was originally recorded in stereo, was released only in mono. But in the mid-80s, a true stereo version of Satisfaction came out on some Japanese and German editions of Hot Rock 64 to 67. Now, they're long out of print, but you can get them from collectors if you got lots and lots of money. In the real true stereo version of Satisfaction, and I have heard this, and unfortunately I couldn't get a version of it to play for you here, you can hear some of these instruments that are mostly inaudible on the mono version. Brian Jones is playing acoustic guitar. You can barely hear it here. And you can hear it very clearly in the left channel. And Jack Nietzsche playing on the piano, much more present. Much more present, okay? But we're so used to hearing the mono mix. Like, you hear that stereo mix, and it sounds it sounds very airy. It doesn't have that, that tight, punky, edgy noise to it. You know what I'm saying? But, but it does, it, it's a cool track, and if you get a chance to listen to it, you know, absolutely, go ahead and do it. It's, your, your, your eyes are going to be open there. So the record was released in the United States on June 6th of 1965, just a couple of weeks after it was recorded, and in the UK on the 20th of August. Now, the reason for the delay is that the Rolling Stones were still touring in the U.S., and they wanted to be in the U.K. to support the record when it came out. The following week, uh, June uh, 12th, it entered the Billboard Hot 100 at number 67. It was in the top 10 the very next week, and it was at number one the week of July 10th, where it stayed for four weeks. And with a total of 14 weeks on the charts, Satisfaction was rated by Billboard as the number three song of 1965. And of course, it was an international smash as well, and it's been covered numerous times. And here are some of the more notable ones. This is from 1966. Otis Redding covered the song at the uh, behest of some of his backing band. Now, Otis hadn't really heard the song previously, and when he did, he didn't really like it. So he really changed it up, changing some of the words around and adding, surprise, horns. Now, 
Now, given that horns were part of Keith Richards' original vision for the song, of course, Keith Richards loved that version. Redding's recording of Satisfaction was one of, the, one of the first times that a black American artist covered a British band. Usually, it was the other way around. Now, Mick Jagger's favorite version of the song comes from Jonathan King. He was recording his bubble rock at the time. I can get no satisfaction. So you can hear it's got a little bit of a country and western feel. It's got a more lush arrangement. And it was a pretty big hit in the UK in 1974. It was a top 30 hit. And the American new wave band Devo recorded the song twice, once as a self-produced track and then again for their first album, recorded, uh, produced rather, by Brian Eno. They played it for Mick Jacker, who gave his approval, and it was released in 1978. remember this song being performed by Devo on Saturday Night Live on October 14, 1978. And while a lot of people were kind of offended by it, well, 15-year-old me found it to be pretty cool and weird, and I think it really ramps up the anxiety of the narrator with the quirky delivery and kind of a stark feel to it. Now, my daughter just thinks it's kind of weird, but she wasn't around to see that sound of the 80s coming in like that, and this was among the first wave of that style. Okay, before I wrap up, I want to take you back to that day in Clearwater, Florida. A few hours after the poolside writing session, the Rolling Stones were once again piled into a car and into the garage to head to their next venue. They were accompanied by a local reporter from Tarpon Springs, that's a nearby town in Florida, a woman named Frances Brush. And uh, Frances was a little bit older compared to the band, and she was feeling a little bit condescending. And right before the band left, Ms. Brush uh, asked Brian Jones... What are you going to do when the bubble bursts? And Brian Jones had the perfect response. He smiled and he said, We'll blow another bubble. And that's it for this edition of How Good It Is. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow me on Twitter at howgooditispod. You can also check out and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod or... You can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where I throw in a few extra bits for you. Next time around, we're going to find out how good it is to spend some time with the Sultans of Swing. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time. Mm -hmm.